This is Internet Marketing. Welcome back to the show where we give you the lowdown, the inside information, the word from the experts to help you use the internet as part of your marketing machine. Internet marketing is brought to you by Academy Internet at academyinternet.com and Wireworld Media at wireworldmedia.co.uk. Hi, and welcome to episode 31 of Internet Marketing. In this episode, I have a chat with Dan about a purchase of a little tiny slice of Facebook by Microsoft. Some unspeakable sum. And I also talked to Duncan Brody about how to successfully use article marketing. Mr. Rowles, how are you, sir? I'm very, very well indeed, Andy. Thank you. Good to see you again, to be recording again. Yes, it's been a while, hasn't it? Far too long, but uh, lots has happened, so there's lots to report on, luckily. So today we're talking about, we've got uh, some news about Facebook, and we've got some news about uh, Google and Nielsen. Yeah, just Google for a change. Not that we like to mention Google ever, <laughs> but yeah, we've got some information about them. Well, let's start with that story about Facebook. What's been happening? Well, it's, it's been in the news non-stop. Everyone's aware that, I hope, that Facebook is a social networking website that allows you to connect up to other people. And it's been the real darling of the media lately. Techies like it and, you know, users like it. So it's, it's a very popular site. It's growing absolutely massively. But what's been interesting is there's been lots of talk about, you know, who wants to get a bit of ownership of it. Basically, it's, there were some rumours that Microsoft wanted a bit and Google wanted a bit. And what it's ended up with now, um, and it's actually gone through, is that Microsoft has bought 1.6% of Facebook. For how much? For $240 million, which, if you work it out, makes the company itself worth about $15 billion. Now, I'm not entirely aware of the entire ownership. Hang on, just say that again. $15 billion. So, so we think that Facebook is worth $15 billion. Well, that's the valuation based on that, but I don't really think that carries through. Um, there's a few reasons it could be worth that much because the amount of people that are looking at it. I've got some stats here that basically say that the amount of users is increasing by about 200,000 a day. There's 50 million registered users around the world. It is an international audience, so it gives you access to all that kind of thing. But... Some of the key problems are that, first of all, more and more businesses are blocking Facebook on their firewalls. Can I ask why? Well, just because people are wasting time at work, kind of chatting with their friends and sending each other photos and, you know, sending each other nudges and all kinds of silly things. So more and more people are worried about it. And the stat here, apparently, according to a report, 233 million hours of work are lost each month in the UK alone to staff messing around, basically, on social networks. So it's become an issue. So it's been blocked from work. So that is going to reduce the amount of people are interacting with it and the amount of time people are spending on Facebook in the first place. Okay, which could drop the value. It may not. It's, it's not the issue. The key thing is that it looks like there was some bidding war going on to a certain extent between Google, between Microsoft. They both wanted ownership. Now, this is speculation to a certain extent, but I don't think because 1.6% is worth that many million dollars that you can multiply it through. 
okay? Because there's been a few things like this when, when YouTube was bought by Google for a massive market value. If you were to get an investment bank to go in and say how much is that worth or someone else, it, it isn't worth that much because it doesn't drive the revenues at the moment. And we're, we're having a few issues at the moment where people are going back to the dot-com boom days. I was going to say, this looks a bit like then, doesn't it? The dot-com boom thing. It's not happening again, is it? Well, I, I don't think it is really. I think that, you know, from... Microsoft's point of view, for that 1.6 investment, what can they do with that? They don't need to own the whole site. They just need to be able to get in front of the people on the site. So that $240 million is actually probably quite a wise investment in terms of getting access to those people. They don't need to own the whole thing to get in front of those people. But as a business, it being worth $15 billion, how would it ever make that money back and over what period of time and that kind of thing? So from a pure business point of view, it isn't worth that. But if you look at it in the long view, the amount of people that are interacting with it, then for buying a small percentage probably makes sense. The nice thing is as well that the guy that started it is in his kind of mid-early 20s. So he's a extraordinarily rich man now, I'm imagining. So he's quite an old guy, really, compared to us, Daniel, yeah, isn't he? exactly, you know. But, um, yeah, I think it's an unrealistic overvaluation, but the 1.6% at 240 million probably offers a quite a bit of value for Microsoft because it depends what they do with it. Nobody really knows what the ins and outs of what they're able to do with it, what that allows them to do. But just the fact they own a bit of Facebook is probably really what they wanted to achieve at the end of the day. Now, what does this mean to businesses that are perhaps using Facebook to promote some facet of their business? As it's, a, it's a double question, actually, because why is it that we're seeing this kind of um, cyclic um, popularity of various um, social network sites? What is it that's made Facebook so um, popular of, of recent months? I mean, before it was, it was MySpace, wasn't it? And, and some of the other networking sites. Yeah, I think the thing is that MySpace was kind of one of the early entrants that people started to look at, and that got a big media buzz, and everyone started using it. And it was a real early adopters issue where teenagers and kids were going on there and using it. They got bored of it and moved on. Same with you know most things like that. And you can see the profile of a user on MySpace now is very different, where about 40-something percent are 35 and older. So the, the kind of um, the age group on there has changed a lot. Facebook was a much cleaner interface. You could have private profiles as well as public ones. So it was appealing to a broader range of people. Um, and it was just a more straightforward-looking interface and application. So it didn't feel so um, youth-orientated. And I think that was why it got adopted so much. Well, the functionality was a bit better, in my opinion. And they've done some clever things now in terms of opening up the API so people can program applications mm. for Facebook as well. And I think that's, that's the real key thing that's, that's created all this buzz and everyone's trying to add things to Facebook, their own applications and bits of software. We're working with a, a website at the moment that's in development that allows you to... It's kind of a social network for sports and it allows people to... They've got a football league they play in, soccer league, they will literally be able to put the scores in and they can publish it into their Facebook profile by linking up through the Facebook API. So that's getting more people involved and plugging things into it, which will hopefully give it a bit more longevity than the way MySpace seemed to go. But in two months' time, we'll be talking about something completely different. I, I, I think Facebook will last because so many people are using it and therefore it's practical, but there's always going to be something new coming along. So you'll have lots of profiles on there that go stagnant where people will move on to something else. There'll be a core user base, and I'm sure Facebook will do it very well in the long term. But people will move on and just because you've got hundreds of millions of registered users doesn't mean they're all engaging and interacting the whole time so from a from a kind of um internet marketer's perspective well one don't rush headfirst into social networks without having a good idea of one which social network should you be on 
first thing. Two, don't try and offer your own social network, which is what so many big businesses have done. They've built these big social networks and gone, look, you can talk to each other and connect up. And everyone has said, why would we? We're already on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So they've tried to go head to head with them at the end of the day, which just hasn't worked out at all for a lot of businesses. So how can you leverage Facebook? Can you do something that plugs into it and connects to your website? And also, do you need to use social networking? It's a great thing but could you use elements of it? Could you start a group on Facebook about your particular subject? Can you allow people to connect their Facebook profile to your website for using the API? So a bit of thought is required. Mm. Don't go steaming in. Don't spend $240 million on 1.6% of a business when you're not sure what it's actually worth, although I'm sure Microsoft has got a better idea than we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and just it, I'm sure they know what they're doing, Dan. Well, you'd hope so, but I'll say nothing more. Well, me neither. <laughs> and um, the, the key thing is, I think... Social networking has become a real buzz thing. There's lots going on. There's lots you, you can leverage, but make sure you're offering the key things you always should offer. Give something of value to whoever you're trying to engage with and actually work out why they would engage with you rather than somebody else. So don't try and repeat what other people are doing and make sure your offering is, is different at the end of the day, no matter what you're doing. And that's always the rules for internet marketing at the end of the day. So really, these social networks, they're kind of ready-built um, online communities that you can kind of winkle yourself into by various clever means, including? Well, I think including if there are discussion forums already, go and engage with those discussion forums. Find out who's, you know, who's actually really engaging, um, who are your potential customers. If people are coming into Facebook every day and you've got a bit of software that plugs into it that does something useful for them, you're going to put yourself in front of them every day at the end of the day. This is why social networks work so much, because people revisit on such a regular basis. You don't just go to a website once a month. You probably go every day or every week. So that's the real thing. So see what groups there are. See what software you can offer them. Um, don't try and repeat what they're doing already. But if there is an audience that isn't being catered for already, then fine. Build your own social networking site. But realise that it's going to take a while to do and also you need to make sure that you're not going to just build it and nobody comes. I think there's so much more to be said about this whole thing about social networks. I know we've done an episode already on it, but don't you reckon, Dan, we should revisit this very soon again? Definitely. We've been doing a lot of um, presentations and training on the topic recently, and we've seen some companies that have really kind of come of age with it and are doing some really good things. So I think what we'll probably do is next time we'll have a, a full session on it and just go into it a bit more depth. Okay, why don't we move on to that second story now, uh, the story about Nielsen and Google using... Uh, some Nielsen data. Tell me, tell me the details here, Dan. Nielsen basically work with marketing information and business media products, basically. So they, they, they sell data from various different things. They do the whole thing of estimating traffic and types of visitors to websites, okay, which a lot of people use to try and work out if they should advertise on a website or not. But they also work in the TV arena. Now, what a lot of people won't realise is that Google actually does TV advertising. They're involved basically with uh, Echo Star Communications, Dish Network, and Astounds Broadband Cable Service um, since May. Well, so let me get this right. They're putting ads for themselves, for Google or for other people, onto cable networks. It's other people. So that okay. So they're, they're they're sorry to pull the mic away from you, Dan. They're they're basically. I'm just trying to understand exactly what they're doing. So they're offering a kind of a, a we will sort of be the gateway for your ads to go onto various networks type of operation. Is that what they're doing? Yeah, they're basically working as a media agency, a media buying agency, in that they're 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 selling ad space at the end of the day on TV. So you want an ad on TV? They're one of the people you can go to on these particular networks. The thing with these networks, though, is that they've got set top boxes, mm-hmm. so Google can actually re- record when and how long ads are being watched for. So they've got a bit more data at the end of the day. Now, what they bought from Nielsen is the information about, you know, 
age, marital status, job, that kind of thing, a bit more of the demographic information so they can build a bigger picture. That's interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, Google is now doing TV advertising, billboard advertising, internet advertising, which we're quite used to. But as well as just doing the pay-per-click stuff that we talk about quite a lot, the Google AdSense kind of program, they've bought DoubleClick, and DoubleClick were one of the biggest kind of online places to get advertising. You could book up advertising on various different websites, and not just on the Google sites, lots of different places. Just on a slight tangent, there's a story I know Andy's been following involving DoubleClick that he might want to mention a website you could go to to read about it, but we won't comment on here for, the, um, for legal reasons, I think is probably the Oh, the DoubleClick story. If anyone is interested, uh, if anyone, any of the listeners are into security, I would highly recommend that you have a listen to the Security Now podcast with Steve Gibson and Leo Laporte. Interesting story that's bubbling at the moment concerning DoubleClick and PayPal. I won't say any more. Just have a, have a listen to the latest Security Now episode. I'm afraid I can't remember it. I think it might be episode 104, 105. Great podcast. Have a listen to it if you're into security and you're interested in that story. Sorry, Dan. We, tangent, we tangented off, didn't we? Carry on. I like a good tangent. That's quite right. The key thing is that it's interesting that Google is moving into more and more different media channels. And one of the key things that I've heard um, people discuss and rumour about is that when you go into the pay-per-click uh, you go into your account management, you're going to be able to start picking different places you can advertise. So at the moment, you can advertise on Google. You can advertise on the search network, which is a group of websites that you, know, you can do searches in. You can do the content network already, which is other people that are publishing Google ads. Well, now they've bought DoubleClick, you're going to be able to advertise on lots of other big commercial websites as well. And you can choose where to place your banner ads and various different things. Now, integrating into TV and Billboard... I'm not sure they're going to tie those things together, but you're starting to see that Google is basically acting as an advertising agency. There's obviously a lot more to Google than that, but it's interesting how they've, they seem to be quite clear on what they actually are, which is fundamentally a company that sells advertising. That's how most, you know, when I say most, I mean probably 99% plus of their revenue is made. So we just need to always bear that in mind when we're dealing with Google at the end of the day. I just wonder, if Facebook is worth, how much was it worth? Uh, I think we decided that it was worth uh, 240 million for 1.6%, so $15 billion. Dare we hazard a guess to how much Google's worth right now? I'm thinking about $100. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of money at the end of the day. I mean, in terms of the, the share value has just gone above um, $600 a share, and they're thinking it's going to hit $700 a share because their profit forecasts, they're actually doing better than they expected. Okay. So, interesting times. They're going from strength to strength. There's a thousand different things going on with Google at any particular time, as we're all well, because we keep reporting on them more than anything else as well. Mm-hmm. But it's an interesting one to watch if that growth is going to continue. Okay, this story about um, this, this data yeah. uh, that Google have been using, yeah. what is the relevance to internet marketers around the world? Well, first of all, it's, it's to watch what Google do, what are they actually offering, um, and how much control they have over the, over the market. So if you're advertising, are you going to find yourself going to Google more and more, and how is that going to affect the pricing of your advertising at the end of the day? Because if it becomes more of a monopoly, you know, is it going to get more expensive? Pay-per-click through Google has got more expensive because it's become more competitive because it's effective at the end of the day. So having a look at how that's actually going to affect you is going to be really important. So heads up on anything else on that stage. The other side of it is they're building a really solid image of what's going on with their customers. So they know what ads they're watching, when they're watching them, age, marital status, all that kind of thing. Now they can build a picture from that and work out what else people are interested in. Now, as a website owner or somebody that's doing internet marketing, you need to be thinking in the same way. 
what what can you build up about your customers in terms of where they're visiting how long they're visiting for and you can use google analytics for that as well if you're so we, we, we've spoken to we've spoken about that before haven't we we have absolutely and google analytics is one of the analytics solutions that you can use now all i would say is that there is also quite a lot of issues at the moment regarding how much data you should actually be collecting about people and how long you store that data and google have been up in court on this whole subject and discussing it at length as well so my one piece of advice isn't it is only collect data that you specifically need tell people why you're collecting it in the first place okay and only keep it as long as you actually need it because at the end of the day um, none of us likes loads of information being stored about us some of us are more concerned about it than others but at the end of the day just be very cautious of this kind of thing because there is a bit of a backlash going with it at the moment and people are getting quite concerned about privacy online. So when you collect your data, collect the stuff you need, but tell people why you're collecting it. Okay, well, that's um, a, a very highly valued Facebook and uh, a data-ridden Google. We've had some questions, haven't we, uh, Dan, including an audio question? We have. We had a, an audio question sent in. Let me just rustle my papers there, as per usual. Elisa Cook very kindly sent in a question, actually audio recorded. And I have to say it was recorded very nicely as well, because Lisa does her own podcast on genealogy. And she owns a website called genealogygems.tv. And what you'll see from that is if you send us an audio question, you get an absolutely brilliant plug as well. So um, feel free to send in audio questions. We always want to receive them. And Lisa, you've put us to shame that the quality of your audio is absolutely superb. Let's have a listen. Hi, Andy. This is Lisa Cook in California, and I have a podcast called the Genealogy Gems Podcast. My website is genealogygems.tv. I have a question for you. I've recently started an AdSense campaign on my website, and so far the return hasn't been very good. So I know that you've done an episode not too long ago on AdSense, but I'm wondering if you could go into a little more detail about website content. I'm wondering if maybe I don't have enough. Do you or Daniel know how much content we should strive to have on our website or even how many pages of content in order to really maximize the AdSense campaign? And just in general, any other comments or suggestions that you might have? I love your podcast. Uh, keep up the great work. We all learn a lot from you guys. Thanks. Well, there we go. Dan, what's the answer? Um, I think the key thing is, is it's a bit of a, uh, a split question. First of all, the whole thing of how much content do you need to actually to make an AdSense kind of a pay-per-click campaign work well? Well, there's a couple of issues. First of all, it's about how's the pay-per-click campaign working on its own before people even get to the site. So... Are the keywords you're choosing to bid on correct in the first place? Are they really, really relevant to us on your website? Is the content of the ads correct? So have you got that right? And we've talked about this kind of stuff in the, some of the previous previous um, podcasts as well, which I think it's probably worth revisiting soon again because it's all changed so much since we last recorded it. The key thing is the amount of content you actually need on the website is a usability issue at the end of the day. And now you need a relevant landing page. So if you have an ad about a particular topic, you need a page that is specifically about what you're talking about in that ad. That's the first thing. You're about twice as likely to get a conversion of some description, people actually doing something, if the page matches the ad and you're straight there. Okay. Having looked at Lisa's website, the thing I'd say is, what is she aiming for people to do? Well, I'm assuming it's subscribe to the podcast, collect some data, but to buy the book. It seems to me that's the, the key kind of thing. And I think there probably needs to be more calls to action and more focus on that in the website. And I'm making some blind guesses here because I haven't seen the data from, from the account. In terms of the actual amount of content you need, you only need the amount of content that somebody is actually going to want. Now, that's a bit of a how long is a piece of string answer. But 
if somebody comes on and people are very focused on achieving something they come to a website they want to get a piece of information they want your contact detail so on and so forth you need to give them the relevant amount of content at the end of the day that might be a page that could be 10 pages but what i'd suggest is the content you've got must have a call to action that says what the next step is mm-hmm. every single page in the site must say have you read about the book go and look at the book have you subscribed to our podcast go here and the information needs to be clear the other thing i'd say about the website is perhaps we could you could look at the whole thing of how people flow through the website by looking at the analytics and actually seeing where people are dropping out where people actually come from the pay-per-click what they're doing so I think the first step here would be to look at the pay-per-click data and also to look at the analytics data and build a better picture. And then you can get a more specific answer of how much content you actually need. And since Lisa was so kind to send in our first audio question, what I'm going to try and do is arrange to get hold of some of that data and actually get a bit deeper into this news. It's a bit of case study so we can show people how you can improve your site quite simply. So um, a bit of free consultancy, which is never a bad thing. And we'll just try and take it a bit further. So the key thing is, Think about what people are actually trying to achieve. Give them clear call to actions. But the volume of content will very much depend on what you're trying to do. And I think that potentially the content that Lisa's giving away in a podcast should be repeated on the site to a certain extent as well. And I think that would really help with getting more conversions. Interesting question, really, wasn't it? Because it, it combined this concept of is the content right or is there enough with a sort of pay-per-click. Now, does... I seem to remember that I've never played with this myself. Mm. Google Analytics, mm. that does dovetail into pay-per-click, doesn't it? Yeah. You can you can look at um, Google Analytics and absolutely separate out what's coming from natural organic search, what's coming from pay-per-click, and what's just coming straight into your website. And we can then say, we can follow it through to say, pay-per-click is doing X, Y, and Z, and particular searches are good and particular searches are bad. So you can actually start to build a quite a strong picture of what's going on. And by looking at that, you can then get a much stronger answer to how much content you actually need. It's all to do with data collection, isn't it? It's, it's taking a leaf out of Google's book. It is, but not going too far. But not going too far. <laughs> I'm getting too naughty about it. Okay, any more questions, Dan? No, I think that was it for now. We've actually got a couple on um, for next time on in terms of what are the best resources and some not-for-profit questions as well, which is something we haven't really covered before. So um, I'm going to do a little bit of research and have a go on to that one next time. Daniel Rails, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Andy. Now, just before we go on to the next segment, I must talk about our main sponsor, Academy Internet, who have been with us from the start. Now, Academy Internet are a full-service online marketing agency who cover the full spectrum of online marketing activities and objectives. It's all about using the technology to make your business work, and they're happy to guarantee that they will improve your return by at least 30%. You can find them at www.academyinternet.com, or you can call them on 44 if you're outside the UK, or 01273 Okay, so let's move on now to that interview with Duncan Brody of goalsandachievements.co.uk. Duncan is using article marketing very effectively, and I wanted to know just how he was doing it, so enjoy. It was recorded in a cafe, sorry about the background noise again, but I held the mic very close to his mouth, so the background noise shouldn't be too bad. Here we go, enjoy. Hi everyone, I'm with Duncan Brody. Duncan has been running uh, Goals and Achievements for how long, Duncan? Um, just about 18 months now, Andy. And Duncan is having some really quite interesting success with article marketing. And uh, we're going to have a chat with him. And um, perhaps first of all, Duncan, just tell us what would your definition of article marketing would actually be. Um, my definition of article marketing is um, 
helpful hints and tips around how to be more successful, uh, which are posted online on the internet and available for viewing. Tell us how you actually got started. Was it by intentional or by accident? Well, I actually got started on article marketing directly as a result of a conversation with a colleague in the US. Uh, I was talking about um, ways of getting approaches to publishers right for printed media and uh, the person unknown to me specialised in publishing and suggested that I give article marketing posting to online banks a try. She sent me a list of about 60 article banks and I just really started trying them out and um, I just snowballed from there. Just give us an indication of uh, the kind of success that you've had with this, perhaps a number of reads. Well in terms of uh, success I've had about 50 articles published on the net over about seven months. Um, I've had about 16,000 views on those articles in the seven months And in terms of leads, it's actually been more in relation to uh, building up my subscriber list for my newsletter, which has increased by about two to three hundred percent since I started with article marketing. How are you actually? How did you actually implement the uh, the bit where people subscribe to your newsletter? Well, I mean, simply on my uh, website on the homepage, I've just simply got a sign up option for for the newsletter. So. How um, I get people to the website is in article marketing at the end of each article you have an author's box where you can record a little bit about yourself, what you do for your business um, and you have a link back there to the website inviting people to sign up to the free newsletter. Some people will click through, take a look at the site and if they think it's right for them will subscribe to the newsletter. Okay, so basically you write an article and at the end of, uh, of the article you basically have a link back to the, the squeeze page, if you like, for the uh, for the email list. That's where you grab the email address and, and name. Now, a lot of people would say, you know, how do you find the time to write? Because, I mean, I mean, how long are these articles and how do you time find the time to actually write them? Yeah, it's funny. Any time I speak to anyone about, um, about article marketing, they always say, yeah, how do you find the time? Um, Surprisingly, it's an incredibly efficient way of getting exposure for your business. Unlike uh, printed articles, uh, articles on the internet are typically four to 700 words. So what that means is a page to page and a half of um, typed word text. So for one article to take it, type it and post it to an article bank probably takes about 40 to 45 minutes. So it's actually very time efficient. So if you're doing two or three a week, then you're talking um, two to three hours commitment. And for those two to three hours commitment, you're getting roughly how many subscriptions, do you reckon? Um, well, I would say that I'm in my last article that I put up, um, which is currently been rated five star on Ezine Articles, it's had about 600 views. Um, and over the last week or so, I've noticed there's been, been about 10 additional subscriptions to the newsletter in the last week or so. So that's a conversion rate of about... Um, I would say that you probably, in terms of if your conversion rate, you're probably getting maybe 1% or 2%. Yeah, which is pretty consistent. Yeah. It sounds very good. Now listen, a lot of people, including myself, would say, well, you know, I'm not a writer. Have you got any tips for how to write a good article? Well, the first thing I'd say is you don't need to be a writer. I mean, I left school with a... GCSE equivalent English so 
I'm not a writer. It's the tips really are is to write about things that uh, you're interested in and you know your client base is going to be interested in. Essentially, all that's required is to pull together um, your ideas in a bit of a logical structure and popular ways of doing it is to have seven tips on, ten tips on how to improve your effectiveness. So really, it's um, all about structuring your thoughts in a very simple and straightforward way. Do you use any tools to do that, Duncan? Um, at the moment, I do it all manually, but there, are, there is software you can buy um, which will essentially post the, your articles to maybe 100 or so uh, directories. Um, Article Submitter is one of those, um, and those typically can be purchased off the internet for around about £50 or just under $100. Okay, so that's automating the submission process. Do you think it's worth going for those? I mean, for instance, why, why do you do it manually, just out of interest? Um, the reason I've done it manually is um, I haven't gone for the scattergun approach of having it spread everywhere. Um, what I'm actually finding is uh, by concentrating on three or four of the article banks, I'm getting other people picking up and contacting me and saying hey we've seen your articles on ezinearticles.com for example um, we'd like to publish it on our site can we have permission to do that so people are co- approaching you to get your permission to put your article on their site? Yeah absolutely I mean the, the most recent one which was a slightly bizarre one was actually a site called Rail Recruiter uh, Rail Recruiter? Yeah, so As in Railway Recruiter? Yeah so it's obviously a company who were um, you know, in the business of a recruiting for the real industry but they've obviously picked up on some of the management themes and have approached me and said hey we'd like to use some of your articles on our site, would you be okay with that? That's amazing. What about ideas Duncan? How do you come up with all the different ideas? I mean are you, are you sort of in the shower and suddenly you get loads of ideas or you, you suddenly wake up in the middle of the night and you have some ideas with a, a pad by your bed or how does it work? Well it's interesting, I, mean, I think a lot of people think oh, I couldn't really come up with any ideas um, there's actually some simple things you can do, uh, for example one option is literally just to do a Google search around some keywords that um, your market might be interested in so if I go in and do a keyword search around leadership and management then I can end up getting some ideas from there um, you can look at uh, some of the things that other people are writing about on discussion forums, you can go to the library um, the other day I actually went along to the library, just pulled half a dozen management books off the shelf Hang on, you, m- you mean the, the old fashioned brick library? Absolutely the Jubilee Library in Brighton uh, the, old, the brick building, uh, but it's quite a new one and, and I've got, never heard of that before and it essentially got um, half a dozen books off the shelf just got some themes and ideas um, and uh, I'll use those to pull together some articles. So it's a bit like brainstorming then, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, just getting some themes and some ideas, yeah, definitely. In your opinion then, what would you say are the key sort of benefits of, of article marketing? Well, I think article marketing is probably just one piece of your overall marketing strategy. Um, I, I, someone said to me, you need a minimum of three channels to market writing, speaking um, and networking tend to be the three that I use. So what's the benefits? Well, I think firstly, um, it's a good way of actually getting your search engine ratings up on Google. 
because when you type on your own name or your business, you start getting lots of link searches. Um, secondly, if you're wanting to build a list of people to a newsletter who you can potentially then sell on products to, it's particularly good for that. Um, and I think thirdly, it's also very good for maybe giving you access to markets that you couldn't otherwise get. You know, I mean, I found I've had people from um, really India and, um, you know, places in America and really a whole range of places who have actually been wanting to subscribe. So I think what it does do, it gives you a kind of reach to an audience you couldn't otherwise access. What would you say to people who say, well, I've already got a blog? And I'm just wondering, sort of, what's the difference between an article and a post on a blog? What would you, how would you answer that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think actually both could be um, of use. I think the, probably the difference is in terms of, in my experience with the articles, is that the articles tend to be more informational based and they tend to be more how to and tips, whereas maybe the blog's a little bit more conversational. Would you say that the articles are longer than the blog post, generally speaking? Um, I think they would be fair to say the articles are probably slightly longer than the blog post, um, but I, I guess people probably post articles slightly less frequently than they do a blog. Well, thank you very much. That's I mean that's really interesting information, and uh, I think I'm certainly going to consider taking this up. I'm not, I have posted actually an interesting thing that the listeners might be um, interested to hear was that on my blog, uh, the two posts that got it hit the most, and uh, I'm, I'm talking about a massive difference in hits compared to all the other posts, were two very informative posts that told people how to fix a, a very annoying problem with Audacity. So that kind of just shows you that something like article marketing, where you're, where you're doing these kind of how-to articles, probably are going to be very, very popular and probably going to result a lot of backtracking traffic. But thank you very much, Duncan, and I'll leave the last word with you. Yeah, totally agree with you, Andy. And I think, um, I mean, the probably the proof in the pudding of popularity around how-to is Wikipedia. So thank you very much. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. I do hope you enjoyed it. Now, I'd love to hear from you, so if you've got any questions or comments that you would like aired on the show, do send them to info at academyinternet.com, and also feel free to send in MP3 files, which will play as long as they're uh, not rude. If you're a subscriber, we'd like to thank you for your valuable time. If you haven't subscribed, then there's a couple of ways that you can have this podcast delivered to your earbuds automatically. You can find Internet Marketing on iTunes or at the academyinternet.com or wireworldmedia.co.uk slash IM for mother websites and follow the subscription buttons. We'd also love to receive comments via iTunes. See you soon. What's new in podcasting? Here's what we love, courtesy of ACAST Recommends. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being completely straight Mm -hmm. and 10 being completely gay, 
What number are you? Um. You know, I don't think that you should rank how gay they are. I guess, I, and you know, that's just a little of a red, just a flag for me. Come on, come out. A weekly podcast where real lesbians tell their real coming out stories. You can find Come On, Come Out on your favorite podcatcher out now. Go listen. ACAST, A-cast, A-cast, A-cast recommends. recommends.